Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have left me in the comment section of my Q&A videos, uh, or have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, everybody. Uh, we did a really fun uh, live podcast this week. Uh, my Sensibly Speaking podcast uh, was live. So we did two back-to-back -back live episodes on the channel this week. And uh, some of you were a little amazed and delighted by that. I'm very happy about that. And um, so here we are with Critical Q&A. And I um, just wanted to kick off this new year and stop talking about kicking off this new year with this first episode of 2022. I hope you will check out the podcast because I got to talk a little bit about some of what is coming up out of my research and thought processes connected with that, with uh, Scientology and thought policing and how that works. I think I could have gone into more detail about it, but I think in the time that we were given and uh, that, I, that I wanted to allocate to it, we covered a lot of really good stuff and I don't think I got too complicated with it. So I hope you guys will give that podcast a listen. All right, that all being said, let's get on with your questions for this week. Michael Yoder, I heard Aaron Smith-Levin in a video mention cause resurgence and that it was basically paying Scientology to torture you. Can you talk more about the purpose and goals of cause resurgence and did you ever have to do it? All right, thank you for this question. And no, I did not ever do the action called the cause resurgence rundown. This is an action that you pay about, oh, I think, what was it, about 5000 or 2500 or something like that. Uh, you don't pay a lot of money for this. It is only, though, the cause resurgence rundown is something you can only do at Flag in Clearwater. In fact, it's the top floor. It happens on the top floor of the uh, Superpower building, that great big monstrosity of a building that Scientology built that dominates the Clearwater downtown skyline, uh, the top floor of that building is dedicated only and exclusively to the delivery of this action. So what is cause resurgence? Well, there's a little bit of backstory to this I can share with you. And this is all just stuff that I have read and or been part of over the years. Um, it's sort of inadvertently because the rundown didn't come out as a public service until after I got out of Scientology. But I ran into it while I was in without actually really totally knowing what I was looking at. It was used to be called the running. No, it wasn't the running program. That was the. Um, no, it was running program. Yeah, there was a. It was called the running program. Anyway, it was. It was a. It was a disciplinary action, and it was something that was being piloted or checked into a run at the int base. And so back when I was in Santa Barbara as a staff member in the 80s and 90s, a guy who had been a Sea Org member at the int base had done this running program and there were daily reports in his folder. And I don't think they were supposed to be there and I don't think I was supposed to be seeing them. I don't think anybody outside of gold or the, the int base was supposed to be seeing them, but somehow they had survived intact in his PC folders. And I was going through and trying to do a review because he was a he was a little bit of a troubled case. And Scientology wasn't working on him, is what I mean by that. <laughs> Which means he was a perfectly normal person. And um he had done this this running program, which is now called this cause resurgence rundown. So what it is is it's it, it's it's too simple. You're not going to believe me. You're going to think I'm making this up. 
There is no possible way that anybody could ever possibly, you know, pay money to go do this. But what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. Okay. And you maybe have read about this and I've gotten some, um, I've actually been in touch with someone who did this program and described to me exactly how it went. And so I'm very thankful to that person for that because it's not, um, it, it's, it, it's, well, it is exactly what you've read if you've read about it. But what basically the simplicity of this is on this top floor of the flag building, they have set up a big round space. And it's very dark. There are only like running lights, like the kind of lights you see in bars or in um, dimly lit rooms, the, the little tracks of, of little tiny LED lights. Those encircle the space in such a way that you can make out the dimensions and, and, and the place where you're, where you're at. And then in the middle of the room, there's a great big dim orange light pole. And uh, this pole goes from floor to ceiling and, or, or something like that, as big a beam of light, basically, and what you do is you circle this beam of light in a in a in a in a constant walk. You walk, jog, run. You have to apparently get a medical checkup on this before you can do it. In the same way that you have to get a medical checkup before you can do the purification program. So if you got bad knees or bad legs or can't walk or arthritis or something like that, then they might not let you on the program. I'm not really sure what the physical qualifications are for it, but there is a medical check. And then you're um, put on this program. You're given a special uniform so that you're special and unique as a special little uh, uh, clear or sorry, cause resurgence uh, rundown snowflake, <laughs> a special little person. Anyway, and... Um, and you're put in this room. Now, when you're doing the program, you are told to just walk, you know, around this thing uh, or go at your own pace around it. Eventually, I guess you're supposed to get to jogging or running around it. And you're just supposed to go around and around and around. You do not have a Walkman or, or headphones or any distractions. And you also apparently don't talk to anybody else in the room who is also doing this. And they are going at their own pace around in a similar fashion. And I guess you have different, it's a big room. So you have a lot of room to navigate and move around in. So you're not bumping up against people. And it's not like there's a lot of people in this room at the same time anyway. Um, again, this is only in Clearwater in, uh, in Florida. So the idea, apparently, what I've read of this is that Hubbard calls this some kind of an, a spiritual assist where you are orienting a Thetan back to having a a single dimension or, a, you know, something to focus on and you go around and around it. And this is supposed to sort of run out hypnosis or run out, you know, trances or something like that. Hubbard had some really weird ideas and convinced Scientology in this really weird logic that by putting you into a trance state, he's actually running out trances or hypnoses in the past. Um, it's a it's a weird idea. Like it's some kind of uh, like faux exposure therapy or something or some kind of recreation thing where you're going to like, you know, put somebody back into this, in this uh, trance state or hypnotic days or passed out state. And, uh, and they're going to come through it out the other side. And that, and by, by waking up or coming through it, they've accomplished something and, and you haven't accomplished anything. I mean, there's, there's nothing there. There's no there there. <laughs> but Hubbard insisted that there was and Scientologists buy into this. So so by going and it's a dimly lit room. So the sensory input from this space is minimal. 
on purpose, obviously. This is a created environment. And the idea is that you are sort of recreating this sort of disembodied Thetan state and are going around this light pole in order to give yourself some kind of uh, dimension or direction or something is only is I'm kind of, you know, putting some of my own thoughts into that, but it's something along those lines. And by doing that, you are spiritually assisting the Thetan to free himself from past locations or past circumstances uh, of, of, of being in these, you know, um, hypnotic, semi-hypnotic, dazed, confused states. And so this is supposed to resurge, give you a resurgence in your ability to causatively choose the spaces and and motions that you engage in, something like that. So great, you know, so that's what you pay a couple thousand dollars for. And of course, let's not forget, this is only delivered at flag. So in the two and a half, or it, oh, apparently the time period goes gradually up to five hours. And you fill out a daily report every day of your wins and successes and any changes you had, what you experienced that day when you were doing the rundown, very similar to the purification program. So you start maybe at half an hour and then you build up, you know, okay, the, the daily report gets turned in and the, and the case supervisor reviews it and then you get a, re a response with written instructions as to what to do the next day. And that next day you show up and go, oh, okay, today I'm supposed to do 45 minutes or an hour or and you, and you build up to five hours a day doing this program. And because you're at FLAG, that's not a full day by any stretch in the imagination, right? At most, you're going to be in this room doing this thing for five hours. So when you walk out and you're done for the day, guess who's at the door waiting for you? Every single salesperson who can at Flag, and they have a lot of things to sell you there. And this is kind of a, this was, the way this was communicated to me is it's sort of presented as cause resurgence is a gateway to superpower. And superpower is what's going to cost you anywhere from $50,000 on up for all of the auditing and training and actions. And superpower is the big honking deal that that building was built for. And superpower is the thing that has all the sense perception testing and tune-up and, and auditing on ethics and justice and that sort of thing. So superpower is supposed to be the great big granddaddy of, of personal change and renovation, uh, you know, spiritual roto-rootering. Uh, and it's supposed to supercharge you and enable... Hubbard said that it was actually supposed to be delivered to the staff. It's not supposed to be being sold to the public in some special building. It was supposed to be delivered to all the staff members in order to supercharge them and, um, and get them uh, in a state where planetary clearing would become a reality. So sort of one is supposed to lead to another, but this is all just for sales and money now, you see. It's not about clearing the planet or helping people even. It's about money, 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 money. So um, so anyway, that's another thing that goes on when somebody is on the Cars Resurgence Rundown is they are going to be sold. And this happens every single day. And you have to sign apparently a pledge that when you get going on this, uh, you are going to be doing it every single day. There is no day off, no exception, no holiday, no circumstances too extreme. Uh, we don't care if a family member dies. We don't care if you have to run out of money. You have to go home, blah, blah, blah. No, none of that matters. You are here every day on the dot until you are done. And, you know, there could be, it, it, it like the purification program where you're sitting there in the sauna sweating it out every day. 
that end result could be elusive and you could be on this thing for days, you could be on it for weeks, you could be on it for months. And you're committed, so uh, they're not going to let you leave or get out until you're done. And they say when you're done, not you. So just more fun and games with Scientology's so-called help. But uh, that's what I can tell you about cause resurgence now. I thought you'd want to have that whole little rundown on that. And you can read more about it on Mike Rinder or Tony Ortega's blog as well. Helen McCarthy. How long would your A to E steps take to get into good standing with the church again? All right, great question, uh, because it would take probably forever. <laughs> the A to E steps, as I've described earlier, are those steps which Hubbard laid out and the church has sort of expanded upon this since his death uh, to get back in the church's good graces. If you have been a disloyal person, a bad Scientologist, you acted against the moral codes of Scientology, you told them to go fuck themselves or whatever it was that you did, and you got yourself declared a suppressive person, and now you can no longer talk to Scientologists, you can't deal with them, they won't talk to you, now what do you do? Well, if you want, if you want to get back in their good graces and you want to have those connections reestablished, then you have to jump through all the hoops the church is going to lay out in front of you, and those are called the A to E steps, okay, A, B, C, D, E. And those steps, I've already, I've already laid them all out in the past, but they basically are crawling on your belly in, um, you know, an atonement for all of your awful past deeds. You have to write all that stuff up, you know, swear you'll never uh, again... Uh, you know, be say or or do bad things about Scientology. You'll be a good little boy or a good little girl, and then you have to um, do some kind of uh, immense amends project that is of um, you know significant benefit to mankind, right? And and such a project usually involves giving the church a lot of money, uh, paying for new recruits, for example, to travel to become Sea Org members. Uh, maybe you pay for the airfare or you buy a car, you do whatever you need to do to facilitate that Sea Org member arriving. I've seen that done, for example, or paying for, you know, tons of the Way to Happiness books to be printed and delivered or buying lots of materials from the church and donating it to places. So you can see there's money involved here and time. This is not a this is not a one time deal where you uh, do some big thing and you're all done. They're going to make you drag this out. And if I were to do this sort of thing, what would be required of me, of course, would be to tear down my channel, remove all my works from, from the public, uh, stop selling my book, um, you know, obviously go online or in a public forum of some kind, publicly, um, you know, disparage Leah and Mike and Tony and everybody who's been fighting the good fight. I'd have to turn traitor to all of them and abandon all of those relationships I have uh, created. And I'd have to um, give over everything I know, all my emails, all my communications that I could, you know, pull up or garner or find. I'd have to turn all that over to the church to show them how, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a good guy now. I want to be accepted back into the church. So I'd have to basically prove to them that I'm will, you know, able to be trusted by them again. And I don't know if such a thing is possible after all the trash talk I've done about Scientology and all the exposure I've done of their abuses. Um, I mean, I just don't know that it would even be possible. But if it were, it would be a years-long project on my part to do that. And um, I, of course, am in no way, shape, or form compelled in any way 
to want to do that. So, <laughs> so no, thank you. I, I like my life the way I've created it. I don't think any, I don't see any reason to tear it all apart and tear it down in order to satisfy the whims of some psychotic madman named David Miscavige. Thank you, but I'll pass. Jeremy Macklem. Have you ever experienced personally or heard of any Scientologist accusing another of, quote, giving them their disembodied thetans? Someone audits off some pesky thetans and their roommate slash partner slash coworker gets upset thinking they have now acquired these unwanted friends, quote unquote. Scientology infighting over handling thetans around like a disease? All right, Jeremy, I think this question is a little tongue-in-cheek, um, is how I think you meant this. Um, I've only heard of Miscavige being afraid of this, actually. I mean, in terms of Scientologists never, ever openly talk about body thetans. Under no circumstances are you to ever discuss that in any kind of public venue or amongst yourselves as Scientologists. That just is absolutely forbidden. Even amongst OTs, they never do it. Um, this is a This is actually like... Pretty, pretty solid, pretty hard bound policy in, inside Scientology. So, um, so no, OTs wouldn't necessarily be joking with one another. I suppose they could. I mean, you know, outside the constraints of the church and its Sea Org bases and out in the big wide world, you can say whatever the hell you want. But you always have a chance of being reported on because remember, Scientology is a snitch culture first and last. And even if you're in friendly terms with somebody right now and you guys are joking about Scientology, one of you might end up on a Sea Org base in the future and have to confess all of your joking and degrading. And then both of y'all are now in a whole lot of trouble. So, you know, it's best to just keep a damn mouth shut in the first place. And that's what you learn when you're in that kind of culture. Um, so, yeah, so odds are people are not even in a, in an off base joking way, uh, you know, talking about this, but David Miscavige apparently is terrified of, of body thetans, uh, glomming onto him, hurting him, disrupting his life, influencing his mind in some manner. I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not, or if it's just another joke. Um, but it's theoretically possible that a Scientologist could think that. I, I find it fascinating only because, or, or questionable, I question that story because I don't think David Miscavige believes that Scientology is real. Um, I, I, I'm giving over that he recognizes he's in a con and he's in charge of that con. There are a lot of other possibilities there that David Miscavige is just that dumb or that extremist in his belief set that he still believes in it, but has somehow worked it all around that it's okay to act the way that he acts and does what he does, but he still believes in, in the theories of Scientology. I, I, I just, that's a stretch to me. I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think that's how he is, but Anything's possible. And he's, and like I said, I'm only harping on this because he's the only one I've ever heard of who, in a real way, uh, has somehow expressed that he was afraid of children and body thetans being around him and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, so who knows? But there you go. First, last, celebrity Scientologists, are they always open publicly about being in Scientology? Great question, because no, they are not. There are people who are celebrities or VIPs who are, who are interested in or practicing Scientology right now that you and I have no clue about. 
Now, I don't know how many there would be at this point because Scientology is pretty exposed as a pretty abusive sort of setup. So probably less than there used to be. But um, who can say, unless you have worked in the president's office of Celebrity Center, you're not going to have an, a certainty on, how, on who is and isn't a Scientologist in the celebrity world. So uh, it's possible anybody could be a Scientologist as far as that goes. Um, but let's remember and uh, keep in mind and always, you know, temper our views on this with the fact that Scientology is a minuscule, pipsqueak, tiny little movement and uh, very few people, celebrities included, are really that interested in it at this point because it's been exposed for what it really is. So uh, I don't know. That's about all I can really say about that. You know, I've, um, yeah, I think that's all I'll say on that. Logamug. In his book on ethics, where the strange Ka Khan example is found, Hubbard jokingly writes, a staff member can get away with murder so long as his statistic is up and can't sneeze without a chop if it's down. What are the limits for someone who is upstat and excluding Miscavige? What are some of the worst breaches of Scientology policies and procedures you witnessed or knew of being justified by this principle? Well, this is a good question because actually, I mean, you say excluding Miscavige, but I have to point out that Miscavige is probably the penultimate example of this policy because Miscavige gets away with things that no Scientologist should ever be able to get away with. He spends money like it's like it's water coming out of a uh, faucet. I mean, he just he's he uh, is very lavish and luxurious with his money and his lifestyle. Uh, nobody stops him or questions him about that, even though it's clear cut violation of tons of church financial policies to live the way that he does. Um, and he has rewritten Scientology in his image. I mean, it's not even like remotely the same. Well, remotely, it's not, it's not the same as it was when L. Ron Hubbard was around, which is not to say uh, that, we you know, that we should hearken back to those good old days of Scientology. It was bad before, and it's worse now under him. Um, but he is constantly given a pass. And in fact, for many years, I was giving him a pass overtly in my mind thinking, well, this isn't right and this isn't right, but look at all the expansion he's causing. Look at these new orgs that are opening up. Look at all this new property we're buying. This is all indicating that Scientology is growing and expanding the way it's supposed to. So I have to give him a pass because he's upstat. He's doing the job. He's getting the work done. And for a long time, this was the only way that I was hanging on in Scientology is telling myself this. So Miscavige really was the ultimate example of, of this. Now, that all being said, as far as people getting away with murder or getting away with stuff because their stats were up, oh, yeah, I, I've seen people get away with um, taking off, with blowing and coming back and being put back on their job, not really getting much in the way of discipline or or any kind of harsh ethics even because they have to be taken care of because these are salespeople or these are people on audit who are auditors who audit other people. And those are the cash cows. Those are the, those are the things that, that where they make the big money. So when an auditor or a registrar salesperson is um, at all under the gun or is, you know, getting dealt with, they're usually dealt with with kid gloves. 
um, because you don't want to blow them off. You don't want to blow them away. And by the time they've gone appetite, oh my God, I was almost about to use a Hubbard expression. Wow, that's what you get. That's what you get for having my mind so enmeshed in this stuff right now. <sighs> anyway, uh, you know, when one, when a registrar or when an auditor, a highly trained auditor, like a class eight or a class nine or let's say, right, or class six, when one of those guys gets overwhelmed, gets burnt out, has had enough, can't do it anymore, they are dealt with very carefully because they have produced so much money or so much income or so many hours of auditing for Scientology, which is really translated to income. Um, you want them to continue doing that work. And so if you beat them over the head ruthlessly with a you know mallet, then they're not going to be able to go back to that kind of work. And so you have to, you know, you want to you want to try to recover them and get them back in the saddle again, basically, is how we would sort of think about it. As opposed to, you know, if the janitor, the cooks, the the clerks, the, you know, the course supervisors, the receptionists, the, you know, anybody else, basically, if they go, you know, nuts, or they decide they can't deal with it anymore, or they decide, okay, I, I don't want to be on this job anymore, I'm out of here, then they'll get a bit harsher treatment, you know. Now, even if they are and here's the here's the stupid part is even if their stats are up, like let's say it's a janitor and they're at 100% clean spaces, you know, every week, boom, 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 or their operational equipment or whatever their statistic is, is, you know, is just running up, 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 which is not hard to do if you work hard as a janitor or as a maintenance person or an engineer, some physical kind of job. So you have your stats up, everything's great, but you piss the wrong person off. You say the wrong thing at the wrong time. You get, you know, burnt out and you decide you want to don't want to do this anymore. You're going to be getting the sharp end of the stick uh, because nobody cares about your job. Nobody cares about your stats. Your stats aren't important to the bigger picture. You see, everybody's statistic theoretically is supposed to be bigger. It's supposed to be, you know, considered equally, but they are not. They are not. And um, and such people are considered disposable. And uh, are gotten rid of or are treated more harshly than those who are considered valuable. Uh, and that's what I can comment on with that. John Jones, after watching your recent excellent video about mind control, I have to ask, how did you become a Rush Limbaugh ditto head and what finally cured you of this condition? Rush Limbaugh came into some real prominence in my life, and I think it was in the early 90s. He had he'd written a couple books. I think he got a TV show um, from a radio program that he had done, and which he went, you know, which he, uh, I think, always did and went back to after the TV thing kind of came and went. He was, he was a bit of a fad, in other words, in the early 90s. And I got on that train, and I was riding it pretty hard, and I thought Rush knew what he was doing and knew what he was talking about. And I found him kind of funny. You know, he, he presented in a very entertaining way. And talk radio and, um, and politically minded or, um, you know, social value minded commentary was, was not something I was watching mainstream media for because I didn't really have the time or TV even. Well, I was a staff member in Santa Barbara. And so I was broke. I was, you know, living hand to mouth. I was literally selling my property on a routine basis just to have money for food or rent. And, um, and so I, I had a pretty scrabble, you know, hard scrabble existence as a staff member. And I was always working and then working at the org and working another job. 
And so I was feeling the crunch of working a lot and being in a society that I thought, you know, should pay me more and should be more valued around uh, principles like religion and morals and ethics. This was these were words that meant things to me as a Scientologist a bit more deeply than they did, you know, maybe other people. And I'm not saying conservatives who followed Rush don't weren't committed to these principles either. I'm just saying that this was my life. This is what I was doing is I was doing Scientology in, effort, in an effort to try to make the world a better place. I was walking the walk. I wasn't just talking the talk as far as I was concerned, from, you know, from my perspective. And Rush Limbaugh was somebody I saw as a bit of a kindred spirit in a way. Um, I mean, I, I know, I know, but this was kind of how I would think at the time. And remember in 1991, I was, you know, 21 years old. I mean, I was no, I had no world experience uh, outside of some, you know, some, some job work, fast food and retail type work, uh, which I was using to support myself while I was working at the Church of Scientology. So, um, so I was low level staff everywhere I worked. I had, you know, jobs, odd jobs or jobs that would go from here or there. And, um, so I didn't really have this big, broad, excuse me, awareness of the big wide world, my place in it, how politics really worked, how DC worked. I didn't understand any of that. So I was all too happy to have a single source of information that was entertaining, funny, and I thought informative tell me what to think. And Rush would joke about that, you know, telling, um, uh, I do all the thinking so you don't have to, or something like that, right? He would joke about that, which was a joke to empower us, to make us feel like we weren't actually getting all of our information from one guy, but we kind of were, right? That's, again, kind of how cults work. They tell you that they're doing the exact opposite of what they're actually doing. I'm not implying Rush Limbaugh is a cult leader. I, I'm not. Um, what I'm saying, though, is that that manipulative technique is utilized by propagandists. And Rush Limbaugh is, if nothing else, absolutely was a propagandist. So um, as far as how I got out of that mindset, I, you know, I didn't really for a long time. What happened was Rush's popularity sort of waned and I was a staff member working in the Church of Scientology. So that was never my main line of thinking or reasoning or, or my life. It was just something that I used to try to inform myself about how the world worked. And I ended up getting this very skewed, you know, uh, sort of uh, conservative uh, view of the world. And that was what guided a lot of my political thinking in the, in the um, early 90s. Which was minimal amount of thinking in the first place, you understand, is what I'm trying to say. I wasn't like really as as politically active or savvy or oriented. I was more Scientology staff oriented. So after the wave passed, I sort of didn't really think too much about Rush. I heard him on the radio every now and again. But the libertarian conservative value set of Scientology in Hubbard you know, kept was parallel with a lot of the stuff and values that Rush was sort of forwarding. So I maintained that kind of point of view and friendliness towards him um, until many years later when I just sort of, I think after the RPF and after I'd had enough, you know, abuse and some, some other world experiences, I came back to looking at conservative values and some of the things Rush had talked about. And I just thought, wow, that's kind of mean-spirited and not really, you know, all true. I mean, a lot of what you talked about and predicted never happened. 
and or was just hyperbole and and it was all about personalities and setting people against each other and talking about the DC soap opera and all of that. And I I just thought, oh, well, he's supposed to be this really heavy duty, you know, high powered political commentator. And this is in the 2000s now. And I wasn't impressed. You know, I just thought, yeah, he just sounds like a big windbag. And and it was really just time and distance away from it, I think, that kind of gave me that different perspective about him. And then after I got out of the Sea Org and out of Scientology altogether, I revisited him one more time. And I just, I, I was, it was just mouth agape. I just, wow, I used to really think this guy knew what he was talking about. That's amazing. And, um, and that's my Rush Limbaugh history, <laughs> all in a nutshell. But you asked, so there's the answer. And, um, and I'm, I, uh, I do not endorse or in any way support anything Rush Limbaugh has uh, said or put out there uh, at this point. So there you go. All right, guys. So that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me ramble on like this. Uh, again, I hope you will check out that podcast from yesterday on thought policing and Scientology. And I will see you guys next week. We are back live every Friday for Critical Conversations. I very much would love to see you guys there. We will be, um, we take calls. Um, I'm joined by my wife, Melissa. It's a lot of fun. So if you can join us live uh, on Friday night, six o'clock uh, Mountain Standard Time. Uh, for that. All right. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.